Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We're a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and if you'd like to support us or find out more about the other shows on our network, head to patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to Creedal Catholic. I'm joined once again by my friend, Kevin Boschman, who's sitting across the table from me drinking a, how do you, is this a Lefe? 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 I don't know. I've heard, of, I've, heard of, I've heard it different ways. And just before we turn the microphone on, we were talking about how this once was brewed by Trappist monks. That's right. And what, and what is it now? Uh, InBev, of course. <laughs> Bought out by InBev. So this is, um, Kevin, you and I used to live in St. Louis, and I remember driving on I-64 past these big billboards for St. Louis University, and it said, a university in the Jesuit tradition. <laughs> so I think of this beer as a beer in the Trappist tradition. <laughs> As in, there's really nothing Trappist about it. Well, maybe, you know, the label is a little bit Trappist. It has a little Latin on it. It so. says Abbey Ale. It does. Um, ex opera messis. What, my Latin is not as good as yours. What is messis in Latin? Oh, wow. You could just call me out. Okay. I, I, you're asking me to, to read a beer label. The, the, um, and I noticed the back says, savor the mystery of the ages. <laughs> With InBev. <Wow. laughs> <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about the Eucharist today, Kevin. But before we get to that, we have to talk about this Netflix trailer that I literally just watched for the first time before turning on the microphone. This, <laughs> this, you said it debuted at Telluride Tell, Mus- yeah. Film Festival yesterday. The two popes. The two popes. And it's, it's hard to tell exactly what the storyline is going to be here, but based on the minute and 45 second trailer, it looks like Benedict XVI, who's played by Anthony Hopkins, will be portrayed as an idiot who's out of touch with God, unable to hear God's voice and good friends with Francis who obviously succeeds him as Pope and is eager to see his own ill-fated pontificate corrected by that of Francis. Is that an accurate assessment of what this trailer looks like? It certainly is (laughs) a a very aggressive interpretation. Um, but I mean, I guess it remains to be seen, uh, it's, it seems based on the trailer fairly accurate though, but uh, I guess what the the filmmakers were going for, you know, it's interesting because the uh, as you watch the trailer, it says something like inspired by true events, but then the uh, the filmmakers basically say that it's kind of an emotional like they, none of this is like really true, it can't be proven, but you could at least it's imagine hypothetical. you could imagine this dialogue having taken place, which was actually um, it was interesting because I happened to be reading. Um, Benedict XVI's Last Testament at the time, and some of the early chapters where he's talking about the transition and his choice to resign the papacy, uh, the interviewer, the author, co-author of the book, uh, basically asked him if he had anticipated that Cardinal Bergoglio, um, now Pope Francis, would be his successor. And by all indications, this book came out in 2016, I think, so about a year, uh, was that three years after the transition of power yes. uh, of the papacy? And um, basically, Benedict says he didn't really know Bergoglio that well, that they had a couple of encounters at the Vatican um, during, you know, visits, um, but that there was no long relationship, that he didn't have much knowledge of uh, who 
Bergoglio really was. As well, and that's not surprising either, because yeah, Bergoglio now Pope Francis was not in the the papal curia. Right, he, he wasn't. Was he wasn't around Rome. He was from the global south, the first pope ever from the global south. He was uh, an, an an Atlantic Ocean away from Europe, no less, in Argentina, and he just didn't spend much time in Rome. So right. there's there's no reason to think that. Benedict and at the time Cardinal Bergoglio would have had a lot of time for in-depth personal chats. Right. Like they were best friends and right. hung out in the Palazzo and, you know, had frequent tea. As and it's not as if he was trailer. heir apparent <laughs> either, because that's, right. that's not how the conclave process works. Right. So, and, and even the, the esteemed Vatican watchers who were establishing odds on the next Pope, you know, Bergoglio was fairly low on that list. So right. there was no plausible case to be made that he was an heir apparent. Right. So it does it does seem to stretch credulity, and uh, I just you know anytime Hollywood tries to portray anything about the Catholic Church, I go in with a very skeptical eye, because these these things are supernatural and they are mysterious to those within, but especially to those without. And so, right, I, I can hardly expect Netflix to deliver a an insightful, incisive portrayal of the Benedict Francis transition. Right. And you know, you hope for the best, but typically uh, when the media portrays these things, it's more based on a desire to uh, speculate and create intrigue rather than attain the truth. So, yeah, well, I think there's certainly a desire to create intrigue and you do that through speculation. But I, I also am probably a little bit more cynical than you. And that I just think there's a lot of, there's a lot of narrative driving this as well. And there's, there's an agenda and there's an intent to, illustrate the church under Benedict as hopelessly out of touch and anti-Islamic perhaps and needing to be up to date on sexual ethics. And then the Francis, the Francis pontificate, uh, rightly or wrongly, of course, but seen very frequently as that that is finally trying to usher the church into the 21st century. And I think that narrative is woefully deficient and uh, not based on facts in many cases, but it seems like this film is probably going to try to continue to drive that narrative. And, and can we talk about <laughs> how bizarre it is to, to have Benedict the 16th with this English accent? Totally bizarre. <laughs> Completely. Uh, yeah. I mean, Anthony Hopkins, of course, a very accomplished actor mm. with a very good voice, but they didn't even try to no. have, him, have him do a German accent. Oh, well, well, I canceled my Netflix subscription, so I, I probably won't be seeing it at any point in time. It's like, but is this the Archbishop of Canterbury? What is going on? Here? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think that's, that's probably, we'll, we'll see what happens, but, uh, happy labor day. As yes, well. you as well. Yeah, uh, here we are. Workers of the world unite. Here we are on a Monday uh, recording, a Monday afternoon, because neither of us had to work. So very right. blessed um, in that, that sense. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed. Uh, I got to, with my, my Labor Day morning, I, I actually got to read uh, a really great article uh, in Dominicana. So for any listeners who maybe aren't familiar, haven't heard of this, Dominicana is the uh, journal of the Brothers in Formation for the uh, Order of Preachers Province of St. Joseph, which is the Eastern Province. So the Brothers in Formation uh, maintain a journal as well as uh, some uh, a blog where they uh, reflect, usually have a meditation every day. Yeah. And today's was particularly um, particularly beautiful, talking about Labor Day and, and a reminder that, you know, Labor Day began in September of, of 1882, and it was kind of a response to the industrial era and how man was reduced almost entirely to work, right? You'd have these uh, not 40-hour work weeks, but maybe six or seven 
uh, day work weeks of 12 plus hours a day. And um, Brother Elijah Dubeck, who wrote the article for today, uh, talks very eloquently about uh, the importance re- reminding us that, you know, man is required to work, but is not necessarily made for work. It's not what gives us our dignity. Um, I think it's always a very good reminder in today's day and age. It is. Yeah. At mass this morning, the priest who gave the homily um, made, made a similar point in saying that work is always supposed to, you know, rightly ordered work before God is supposed to enhance and complement our human dignity, not detract from it. And on top of that, we often get caught up in this very consumerist mentality of working a job and working as many hours as we can. You know, a lawyer does billable hours or you pick up as many extra shifts as you can to make money. Now, the I think the economic reality of many families today is that they have to do that to mm-hmm. make ends meet. But people often do that also to just acquire more money. And, you know, a job is about money, but true work should be about adding to your dignity. Mm-hmm. And then true leisure should not just be PTO where you don't have to work hundred hour work weeks, but true leisure should be activity order to God that refreshes and restores you for work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as a side effect of not having to work today, uh, I was actually able to go to daily mass. So very uh, happy about that. My, my schedule usually doesn't uh, allow it, but with the day off, I was able to go. And speaking of the mass, Maybe oh. this is a good transition. I would, I would give into, you like, uh, that's like a five out of 10. Transition. Oh man. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> still growing there's, into this role. There's some room for improvement. <laughs> I'm still growing into the role. But, but yeah, we are going to talk about the Eucharist, yeah. which is of course the central part of the mass. And I wanted to talk about this because we haven't done an episode of Credo Catholic yet. That's devoted entirely to the Eucharist, but this is such an important part of our faith as Catholics. We had a great discussion on the last episode talking about Veritatis Splendor, but we thought that it would be good to sit down and talk about the Eucharist. And I have a guest coming up on the show, unfortunately not for a couple months, his schedule is very full, but um, he is uh, going to be joining us to talk more about the Eucharist um, and counter some Protestant objections to it. But Kevin and I wanted to sit down and give sort of an overview of the Catholic teaching on the Eucharist to talk about some important points that every Catholic should understand. The backdrop of this conversation, I think, is this survey from mm-hmm. Pew that came out that said, I think 25% of U S Catholics believe that the bread and the wine are the actual body and blood. I'm going to look at the exact more, stats. It's, it's about 50% uh, believe in the transubstantiation. It's uh, 28% know the teaching of trans transubstantiation and accept it. Uh, there's a total of 31% who know that that's what the church teaches uh, so out of that, if you take, you know, 28 out of 31, that means there's 3% uh, of American Catholics who know the teaching and reject it. Uh, and then I think there's another about 20% who were not able to recognize that transubstantiation I, yeah. is what the I just, church teaches. I just pulled up the stats. So here we go. 28. So 31%, like you said, Kevin, believe the church is teaching about transubstantiation. So 31% believe the bread and the wine become the body and blood. 28% know the church is teaching about transubstantiation. think the church teaches that the bread and wine are merely symbols and 1% are unsure of what the church actually teaches. So do the math that two and 1% are either unsure about what the church teaches or Mm -hmm. think the church teaches symbols only. And yet they still believe in transubstantiation. So that's kind of weird. Maybe some survey Mm -hmm. error there, but then there are 69%. So more than two thirds that believe the bread and wine are symbols. 22% believe that even knowing the church is teaching about transubstantiation, 42% 
43% think the church teaches that the bread and wine are just symbols. Mm -hmm. And then 4% are unsure of what the church teaches. So a very big problem. Basically what you, where you want to be is 100% know the teaching and believe it. Right. Instead, we're at 28% know the church teaching and believe it. And 43% think the church teaches that they're symbols and 69% don't believe the teaching period. And you know, we're, we're maybe a little, a little, late to the fight on this one. This survey came out yeah. what, about a month ago. Yeah, I think so. And there's a lot of great uh, kind of literature and presentations that have come out of this. Bishop Barron has done a couple of things. Uh, Word to Life, uh, which is a radio show on Catholic radio hosted by, again, the province of St. Joseph for the Order of Preachers. Uh, they did two episodes. You can see them uh, podcast talking about uh, this topic. But uh, I think, you know, we talked about doing this and we agreed that even though it's a one could argue it's a little bit after the fact with the survey. It's still so important uh, and an issue that you know should not fade from the forefront. So hopefully, uh, maybe rather than being late, we are timely in the sense of continuing uh, the the effort to spread what the church actually teaches about this. Yeah, I hope so because this is the as the Second Vatican Council calls it the source and the summit of the Christian mm-hmm. life. So we have to get this right. Right. This is this is the very center of all of it. So we have to get this right. Now, that that probably sounds strange to a Protestant who's listening to this because from a Protestant perspective, the Eucharist is almost never given the same level of prominence that it has in our Catholic theology. Now, you know, there are, there are there's definitely a range in Protestantism. There will be some who uh, embrace a, a Zwinglian theology and say, no, they're mere symbols, and so we don't need to give it the prominence um, that others do. And then you have Anglicans and Lutherans who will say, no, we, we give it a very high prominence it features centrally in our uh, liturgies and our mass whatever but you'll find no one in protestant circles who practices eucharistic adoration for example Mm -hmm. you know bows before the monstrance uh, head to the floor and proclaims that that is the body of christ in the monstrance so even though there is a range in protestantism you won't find a perspective that places such a high emphasis on the body and blood and i think that the range basically of opinions on what the Catholic practice looks like, looks like idolatry on in a worst case scenario, right? Why is this person, why is this person bowing down before the bread and wine when it is just bread and wine? Why are they going to Eucharistic adoration and bowing to this thing that has a wafer in it? Obviously we don't believe it's actually wafer, but to an outsider, that's what it looks like. So in a worst case scenario, it looks like idolatry. I think in a best case scenario, you look at Catholics as a Protestant and think, okay, this is, um, a waste of time. <laughs> There's nothing there. So you guys are just sort of wasting your time. You could be doing more important things, or it looks like just an overzealous, but well-intentioned, albeit misguided attempt to channel your devotion to God. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the range, I think of possibilities that a Protestant sees to a Catholic, but to us, this is the very central part of our faith. Lumen Gentium, which is the dogmatic constitution of the church from the second Vatican council calls the Eucharist, the source and summit of the Christian life. And I think if that is true, then, and we have to accept that it is true as good creedal Catholics, then we have to be sure we understand exactly what the church teaches about it. We can't be in that, that 43% of people who think the church teaches that the bread and wine are symbols. And we can't be in that 22% who know the church teaching, but still decide not to believe it. Yeah, I think, uh, I think you've, you've, you know definitely more about uh, what it would be like. Uh, or how Protestant would look at this being on the other side. Uh, But I think one of the uh, big criticisms or, or lines of criticism that 
someone who is not a believer in transubstantiation, transubstantiation will uh, leverage against Catholics is that the teaching uh, is not in the Bible. So, Zach, what do you, uh, what what is your response to someone who would say that uh, this idea that the uh, bread and wine contain the true body and blood, soul and divinity of uh, Christ? So it's a great question, and uh, you're in good company in asking that question because I just recently read a, an essay by none other than the uh, former Benedict XVI at the time, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, called the presence of the Lord in this sacrament. And uh, that is found in his his uh, longer book, that's sort of a collection of essays called God is Near Us, the Eucharist, the Heart of Life. And in the essay, um, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger asks three questions about the Eucharist. He says, let's, let's sort of get to the bottom of these. First, is it in the Bible? Second, is it possible for a body to be everywhere? at all times and places because you know, have, you have my parish here in Colorado Springs and your parish in Denver and another parish in Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo that may be having mass at the same exact time. So can Jesus really be in all those places at one time? Right. And then when I commune and when you commune and we go home with Jesus inside of us after we commune, is that possible? Like, doesn't this break metaphysical boundaries? And then the third question that, um, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger asks in this essay is, um, whether or not modern science has sort of disproven the metaphysics that these ideas are based on. But the first one, like you said, is this in the Bible? I think this is a really important one. And I'd like to have us sort of just talk about John chapter six here, because mm-hmm. this is a passage that I think is really easy to overlook as a Protestant or just write off as um, some over imaginative uh, metaphorization by our Lord. Uh, but the, the words here really pack a punch and the disciples on the spot were a little bit offended at them and the crowd was offended, but Jesus stuck to his gun. So I'm going to read here from uh, John chapter six, verses 49 through, uh, let's go through 58. So uh, 49 through 58, Jesus says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. This he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who those were that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer walked with him. Mm. Jesus said to the 12, will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I went further. I ended uh, at verse 69 there. 
But so, Kevin, what are your first thoughts there? John chapter six. First of all, does this answer the question about whether or not the Eucharist is in the Bible? Say so certainly, uh, there is there is certainly teaching in the Bible there, right? This is uh, the bread of life discourse, and it certainly um, it certainly addresses the question. And I think what is really beautiful about this passage is that Jesus recognizes that this is a difficult teaching, um, and he clarifies it, right? He spends the time um, in these passages to say, no, no, this is not, you know, this is not a metaphor. This is not uh, easy. I'm I'm telling you, this is truly uh, my flesh and, and my blood, and this is... Uh, the way to eternal life and you know people will will reject and we see that people people do turn away as a result um, but I think the the great faith of Simon Peter is so incredible as actually I'm, I'm glad you continue because that's one of my favorite uh, verses when when Christ actually asks him if if they will will turn away as well right. and, and he said who Simon else, Peter, who else know, should we where go? do we go yeah yeah I mean a, cu- a couple things on this one like you said it's very literal mm-hmm. and Jesus doubles down on this. I think some interpretation, I know some interpretations say this is just Jesus speaking metaphorically, but that really doesn't stand up to scrutiny of the text here. So you have Jesus, first of all, like you said, the bread of life discourse in many of the verses preceding what I, where I started, Jesus is saying things like truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven mm-hmm. for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Clearly this is, um, this is echoing manna, right? Uh, in the first Exodus, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And the verb here is the Greek word. I don't know if the pronoun- the pronunciation is totally correct. You're, you're the Greek scholar, Kevin, but as Theo, which means to literally eat. And can also be a word that is much more graphic than that. It means like to devour or to consume. Mm-hmm. And astheo occurs 18 times in the Gospel of John. And every single time, um, it either occurs in these passages about the bread of life that some people say are metaphorical, or it talks about actually eating food. Like just, you know, you sit down to lunch and you eat a meal. In fact, you know, in the early part of John chapter six is the feeding of the 5,000. That's not metaphorical, right? This is a miracle in which Jesus gives actual food, actual sustenance, actual fish and bread to 5,000 people who have come to hear him talk. So continuing in that vein, um, it's hard to make an argument that that there's a sudden shift here, a sudden tonal shift where uh, Jesus is now no longer speaking literally, but speaking metaphorically when he's talking about eating. The second thing is people are clearly offended at this, right? Because it seems like they're they're taking him literally, right? When he says, I'm the living bread, if anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. We have in verse 52, the Jews disp- disputing among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat, right? Like they're, they're that's that word as Theo again. They're clearly mm-hmm. saying, how is this guy, to, how is this guy going to give himself, give himself to us to eat him? That's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> and Jesus doubles down in verse 53, truly, truly. I say to you, unless you eat, again, the verb, astheo, the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so he says this, right? He says this to the, to the people who are offended. Many of his disciples in verse 60 say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Like, this, is, mm-hmm. this is strange. This is weird. This is not what we're used to. And Jesus doesn't say, guys, relax. It's a metaphor. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> trying imagine, to, like, I'm just chill try- out, chill out. No, I, <laughs> yeah. no, no, that was just, I was just, no, <laughs> this is just advanced prose. Right. <laughs> uh, no, he says, do you take offense at this? 
And, and his, his next line here in verse 62 reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend recently who was, uh, I was telling him that I had, I had become Catholic and he is not Catholic. When we first met, I was not Catholic. So he knew me as a Protestant and I told him that I had, I had become Catholic about four years ago. And he said, you know, a lot of the things of Catholic theology I can sort of get on board with, but the, the, the transubstantiation is a bridge too far. I can't really believe that the bread and wine actually become the body and blood. And um, in verse 62 here, Jesus says to the disciples, after saying, do you take offense to this? He says, then what if you were to see the son of man ascending where he was before? Mm-hmm. Um, and this reminds me of the conversation I had with my friend because I was thinking, you know what? I totally understand you saying this is a, this is a hard saying. This is, this is tough to believe that the bread and wine actually become the body and blood. But you know what else is hard to believe? Back up to earlier in the chapter. It's hard to believe that Jesus multiplied bread and fish and fed 5,000 people with it. It's hard to believe that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It's hard to believe that Jesus uh, was, let's, let's back up even more than that, that Jesus is God become man. The incarnation is really, really hard to believe, right? And we do believe it. We have faith in it because these things are true. But we believe so many things in our faith that are tough, right? And Part of that is that we believe in them and we give intellectual assent to them. And then that allows us to grow in faith. And they're not, they're not, not in accordance with reason. They're, they're not discordant with reason. They're in accordance with reason. Um, even if they can't be proven uh, in the sense that science wants to, you know, modern science wants to prove things and modern scientists are obsessed with proving things. So Jesus is saying, you know, you take offense to this. What if you were to see the son of man ascending where he was before? And by the way, the disciples will see the Son of Man. He's not speaking metaphorically here. The ascension is an actual historical event that the disciples witnessed and then bore witness to. So I think the the metaphorical argument here really strains the text. Yeah, it. You, I think the burden of proof it definitely falls to the to the person who thinks this is a metaphor because, as you pointed out, the the language is so evocative and Christ says, "I am." Uh, throughout these passages. And then again, the verb that he's using to talk about eating fago or fagain, um, which l- means literally to eat or to physically consume something. Right. And then later in John uh, 13, 18, when, um, when Christ is again at the last supper now talking and uh, in, in presenting the Eucharist, he transitions to a new word and that is trogo. And trogo is a word without any ambiguity, whereas fago can at times have um, a little bit of a spiritual context. Uh, trogo is a word that is used to literally like to chew on meat, wow. to gnaw meat, right? Very graphic, And yeah. so it's, it's just, in, it's like you said, it, it strains any sort of interpretation to try to look at this as, uh, as Christ's speaking met- metaphorically or symbolically. So then it raises, you know, from there, the question of what is the reason for disbelief? Is it like kind of like you alluded to and people say it's a bridge too far. It, is it because you think it's an impossibility? Right. Which is a strange assertion for, you know, people who are fond of saying all things are possible through God. True. So it, it seems if you can be uh, a man incarnate of a virgin endowed with the spirit of God and be God physically manifested on earth. It seems like transforming bread into is pretty low on the list of of miracles. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, when people say that to me, it's like, okay, let me get this straight. So you believe first of all in God, I mean, I think that's a very reasonable proposition, but let's start there. You believe in God 
and you believe in the Trinity, which is a complete mystery, right? Mm -hmm. It is inaccessible, uh, not entirely inaccessible, but at least partially inaccessible to our human reason. So you embrace the Trinity. And not only that, but you believe the Son of God, who is consubstantial with the Father, became incarnate, right? Was born of a virgin, right? Uh, And then grew up and was a man and worked all these miracles and died on a cross, but then he rose again from the dead and then he ascended into heaven. You believe that, but the bread and wine becoming the body and blood is too much. Like that, that's a bridge too far. That's where you draw the line. Right. It seems like you draw the line a lot earlier than that. I mean, I think it makes sense if you're, if you're, um, you know, a self-described progressive Christian and you say like, no, I believe in God in the sense that I believe there's a sort of a, you know, there's this deistic presence out there. He, she, it, whatever we can't define, we can't know. And I think that Christianity is one historical expression of belief in this uh, deistic entity. And I think that, you know, the beauty of Christianity is that the resurrection isn't literal, but spiritual in the sense that we can all be born anew. Like if you're going to take that approach, then I understand why you're not going to believe in transubstantiation because you're just not going to believe in any miracles. You're not going to believe in anything Mm -hmm. that is not entirely accessible to your limited reason, but don't believe all the other stuff and then reject this one. That doesn't make any sense. Right. So I think that Uh, pretty much addresses the question about whether or not the Eucharist is in the Bible. Would you say so? Yeah, I think so. I will just add to this. I mean, look at 1 Corinthians uh, 10 and 11, where Paul talks very clearly about transubstantiation. And he actually talks about how some people are getting sick by Mm -hmm. taking the bread and wine unworthily. You don't get sick if you just eat regular bread and wine with sin on your soul. That's not a thing, right? Mm -hmm. If you just eat regular bread and wine and you have sin on your soul, you're not going to get sick. The reason people are getting sick is because there's something special about these elements. There's something special about uh, the bread and the wine after they're consecrated at mass, right? Um, so that's why people are getting sick. Uh, very clearly, too, in in First Corinthians chapter eleven, verses twenty three through twenty six, um, right? This is the chalice of my blood. This is the, this chalice is the new covenant in my blood. This body, this is my body. Very clear in the language there. Um, also, there are many, 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 many other scriptural references or foreshadowings um, or descriptions of the Eucharist. And uh, I will include a link in the show notes. But if you're just listening to this and you want to check out this site, go to scripturecatholic.com slash the dash Eucharist. And you will see a list, a very long list of some scriptural passages that reference or refer to the Eucharist in some way. So go check that out. But I think we have answered the question of whether or not this is in the Bible. And to your question, Kevin, just before we hit the record button, you were talking about some of the theological work on the Eucharist mm-hmm. and how grounded it is in scripture and how uh, fundamentally, uh, you know, theologians as learned as Thomas Aquinas base their ideas, not on Aristotle's metaphysics, but on the word choice of Holy Writ, Holy Scripture, looking at uh, why Jesus said here, or this is my body rather than here yeah, is my body. It is the most literal interpretation, right? And and some of the greatest uh, biblical scholars and greatest theologians of the tradition, you know, were very faithful to the actual um, written text and scrutinized it because words mean things. And uh, they were aware of that as we are aware of that today. And they studied it with that sort of meaning. And um, so looking then, you know, at this second question you proposed about, is it possible for a body to be everywhere at all times and places? So is it possible? Uh, how is it possible that you can be celebrating the Eucharist in Colorado Springs? I can be celebrating it in Denver and other people all around the world. 
um, can be celebrating at the same time, right? And uh, Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, addresses this very well. He addresses a lot of these questions um, in always very well, specifically when we look in his uh, Summa Theologica, which is, of course, his summary of theology. For theology beginners, no less. <laughs> For beginners, <laughs> right? And, the, and then you read it, and then you, you're like, ha. <laughs> Oh, my. Um, yeah, right, a beginner. Western uh, education has slipped a little bit, I just, think. Just a touch. <laughs> um, but he addresses this in the Summa Theologica, and he specifically in part three, uh, question 75, is uh, when he talks about uh, the change of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ through eight articles. And if you've never uh, had an experience, if you've not encountered uh, the writing of Thomas Aquinas, I'll just preface this a little bit. Don't be afraid of it. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's incredible. It's difficult. Um, and part of the reason it's difficult is just because it's, it's a little bit different. Uh, the presentation uh, is different than what our modern presentation typically is. And, uh, Thomas was a student of the scholastic tradition, and when the scholastics wrote uh, their books, they wrote them in a very particular manner. And the way they did this was through the presentation of questions, uh, which would have sub-questions called articles. And what is a little bit strange about it is you will have uh, a structure where the article is presented. So, for example, Article 1 of Question 75, whether the body of Christ be in this sacrament in very truth or merely as in a figure or sign. And then Thomas does not jump right into providing you his answer. What he does instead is he presents a series of objections. So he takes uh, actually the opposite of the stance that he is going to take is the one that he presents first uh, to uh, acclimatize the audience to some popular objections of the time. So actually, if you want to know what Thomas is about to teach you, uh, take the opposite of the first thing that he says. Right, exactly, yeah. The first objection. But I, I love the principle in general of this debate that he tries to take the strongest form of his yep, opponent's absolutely. argument. So it, even if it means he has to make it for them, and he often, or I guess always does in these objections because he says, some people say this and some people say this. Mm -hmm. And I often find myself reading it and thinking, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that objection. And then you go, you get down to the bottom where he responds to the objection. You're like, oh, that's even a better point. Right. Thank you. So he has those objections. Then the next section he'll have in on the contrary, which is typically an appeal to authority. Right. Um, a lot of times you'll see him refer to the philosopher. That's Aristotle. Uh, anytime he does not present a writing with an author, assume that it is either Aristotle's or Augustine's. That's the level of, right, right. of, uh, of honor he gives to those two individuals, one on the philosophical and one on the theological side. But after presenting that brief, on the contrary, he'll provide a section that begins, I answer that. And that's when he's providing his actual uh, theological uh, response. And then the final sections, he'll uh, present replies to those early objections. So it's a little bit of a foreign construct, but once you get used to it, it's, it's really beautiful, as you mentioned. And in that first question, or excuse me, question 75, uh, in that first article, objection number three is further, nobody can be in several places at the one time for this does not even belong to an angel since for the same reason it could be everywhere, but Christ is a true body and it is in heaven. Consequently, it seems that it is not in very truth in the sacrament of the altar, but only as in a sign. That's a pretty powerful argument. Yeah. So how do we respond to it? Um, so I think, so, yeah, so Thomas responds to it very well, but sort of just reading his response to this mm -hmm. argument, um, I read again in this essay by Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, a, an argument that certainly has shadows of Thomas Aquinas's response in this as well. And Ratzinger points out that 
we, as in you and I, people on this earth, pre-resurrected people live in what he calls the sphere of death. Mm. And by that, I mean, or Ratzinger means that you and I are born, we live and we die. And while we are born and live and die, we're in this locus of physical existence in which we are faced with definite physical limitations, right? Because I'm sitting in my chair here, I cannot be sitting in your chair there. And moreover, because you are sitting in that chair there, I also cannot be sitting in that chair there because I cannot occupy the same space that you do, right? So I cannot occupy this more than one space at once. I cannot. I also cannot occupy the same space as another thing, right? So we have these limitations, but Ratzinger points out that, you know, one of the sort of poverties of, um, of modern thought is that we tend to deny the mysterious and we tend to only embrace that which can be quantified mm-hmm. and measured empirically. That idea is one that he appeals to uh, specifically with the idea that we're going to talk about in question three, the sort of metaphysics of the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. But it also applies here and how we're, we're stuck in this sphere of death. What's very clear in the gospel passages especially is that Jesus, once he's resurrected, is no longer in the sphere of death. So uh, think about, for example, when the, you know, any of the resurrection appearances by Jesus to the disciples, um, right, right. Outside of the tomb, when he appears to on the road to Emmaus, exactly Mm -hmm. road to Emmaus appearing to Mary Magdalene. Um, Think also about uh, the passage in John chapter 20, I think it is. Um, Yeah. Yeah. John chapter 20, verse 19 here on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So a couple things here. You might miss it if you read the passage quickly, but first of all, why would, why would Jesus say peace be with you? Like mm-hmm. he's their friend, right? Well, yeah, it's a common greeting um, in Aramaic, uh, sort of like salam alaikum in modern Arabic today, right? Or shalom, right? So he's saying peace be with you, common greeting, but maybe there's another reason. Maybe it's because, because they were scared. Mm-hmm. And maybe they were scared because they were huddling for fear of the Jews because they didn't want to be crucified like their leader was. And the doors were shut and locked. So right. the doors are shut and locked. And then all of a sudden, poof, there's Jesus. There's right? someone there and you're, so, shut, you're you're worried about your fear for, fearful for your life. Exactly. You've locked the door and then a strange man appears in your, your locked room. <laughs> exactly. So something happens here, right? Um, and that is the fact that Jesus was able to, I mean, he's either a really good, he, he's really good with a lock pick, right? <laughs> or he somehow manifested himself despite the locked door and the walls, right? Mm. So is Jesus a ghost? No, he's definitely not a ghost because we know from elsewhere that Lazarus put his hands in his side and his fingers in the holes in his hands, right? And Thomas. I'm, did I say Lazarus? Said Lazarus. <laughs> Sorry, Thomas. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Thomas did that, right? Like that, that, uh, that possibility is addressed elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So we know that Jesus is not a ghost. We know that this is an actual physical resurrected Jesus. So this, you know, back to the, those who say the Eucharist is a metaphor or sort of a spiritual sign. No, this is not spiritual. This is real. This is flesh and blood. This is Jesus mm-hmm. appearing to them, but somehow Jesus is not bound by these physical, uh, laws that we, you and I are bound by in this, uh, sphere of death. Okay. So that's one example. Uh, another one, for example, um, look in chapter Luke 24, uh, this is pretty cool. So he appears to these disciples on the walk to Emmaus. Um, they're with him. They don't recognize him though, right? Mm-hmm. They don't recognize this as Jesus. Now I've read this before and thought this is kind of strange. Like he just died a few days ago, right? Why would they not recognize this right. guy? They're broken up by his death. And yet he's walking with them on a road mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere. And it's a, it's a quiet road, probably not too busy on the road to Emmaus. And they're talking with him the whole way, but they don't recognize him. 
And so when is it that they recognize him? Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished out of their sight. So a couple things there, right? One, they didn't recognize him until the breaking of bread. Right. That's interesting. That sounds rather Eucharistic, doesn't it? Um, and second, after they recognized him, what did he do? Just vanished. Right? He vanished yeah. out of their sight. He's gone, right? So clearly Jesus is not bound by these physical laws that we tend to think he would be bound by. He's resurrected. He is the God man, right? Still man, but he's resurrected. Um, and therefore the, the objection, I think, doesn't hold water. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's that's a really great uh, illustration of how Christ is not the resurrected Christ is not bound by uh, the materialistic uh, constraints of of our world, right? And the the criticisms against that are almost all, as you mentioned, kind of objectivistic and yeah. materialistic. And so I'll just kind of I'll, I'll wrap up with the. Uh, with what Thomas basically actually said. Wait, like I'm sure he'd say it, he's, he's just a way more pithily well, and intelligently than me. So, But very, uh, very difficult, <laughs> uh, as is often the case, very difficult to um, fully grasp what he is saying. But he says, Christ's body is not in this sacrament in the same way as a body is in a place. Sounds like what you, you were just talking about. Uh, which is by dimensions uh, is commensurate with the place. But in a special manner, which is proper to this sacrament. Hence, we say that Christ's body is upon many altars, not as in different places, but sacramentally. And thereby, we do not understand that Christ is there only as in a sign, although a sacrament is a kind of sign, but that Christ's body is here after a fashion proper to the sacrament, as stated above. And then uh, a little bit later in this article, um, Thomas also makes a very, I think, useful, although very difficult to uh, fully grasp, I think, uh, argument about the difference between being body and being a body. Oh yeah, this is good. Um, and he basically says that the way we can understand this is that in the Eucharist, we have Christ's body, but we're not saying that that is a body in the sense of, uh, as you mentioned, your body is a body and has to manifest itself in a singular place. So this distinction between body and a body, as I mentioned, is pretty difficult. I'm not sure that I even having read it many uh, times have a full uh, grasp on it yet. Uh, maybe I never will, but that's part of the beautiful thing that Thomas also says is um, part of this whole mystery is it provides us an opportunity for faith as well. There are clear yeah. arguments for um, why the Eucharist, uh, you know, it, it's in the Bible and, and why it, it can't exist from a metaphysical standpoint, but ultimately you still have to take it on faith, right? Which kind of brings us right into the next question, something, um, so faith being so anathemical to um, modern science, your uh, kind of last question that you posed earlier, hasn't modern science disproven these notions of substance that we claim take place? And I kind of, I, I raced right through that and didn't give you an opportunity to comment. No, that's, do you, that's, do you that's want fine. <laughs> I do want to just say one quick thing on the, on the body point, right? So this is not, um, well, let me back up. You'll, you'll find some people, I think, who will say, I've read this, that Augustine rejected transubstantiation. Mm -hmm. False. He did not. Um, Augustine was countering some ideas that Christians were cannibals, right? Mm -hmm. And so Augustine wanted people to know that, hey, when we say we're eating his body, we don't mean that we are eating a body as if 
you know, we're sort of, you know, uh, eating someone's toes or arm or elbow or something like that. Mm-hmm. This is, this is very real and this is substantial in the sense that this is actual substance, but um, this, you know, when I, when I commune and I participate in the eating of the body and blood in a mystical and mysterious way, I consume the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ whole and entire. And so do you, Kevin, right? So I'm not eating like, I'm not eating a little piece of the body and you're eating a piece of the body. Um, I am eating the body, I'm eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ mm-hmm. whole and entire, just as you are. And so I think that's part of what Thomas is getting at, that this is not as if Jesus' body is being sort of segmented up into little digestible wafer-sized pieces and sips of drink, but rather uh, through participating in the Eucharist in a very real, not just symbolic, but a very real and substantial way, the believer consumes the whole of Christ. And again, not just his body, so not just his anatomy, but his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's, I actually find that very helpful, uh, having just talked through that kind of as someone who maybe didn't, I think you've brought me a little closer to a fuller understanding okay, of that. Good. So thanks. But <laughs> we're all working on it. But Zach. Yeah. Modern science. Oh, yes. I wouldn't do this. All hail science. <laughs> I wouldn't do this. But let's say, you know, if you took the host, if you took the consecrated uh, body of Christ and tested it, did some DNA testing, is it going to show up yes. positive for Jesus or is it going to look to the scientific eye every bit uh, as though it is bread or wine? Well, uh, let me just preface this by saying I'm not talking about, you know, the uh, the rare cases of Eucharistic miracles because those exist Mm. and those are uh, amazing and um, those deserve consideration and perhaps the ascent of faith, but that's not what we're talking about right now. So uh, your average consecrated host, right? Uh, Average is a poor word there. You're, you know, the majority Holy and venerable. (laughs) Yes. Consecrated. Yeah. You know what I mean, right? If so, if, if if we were to take it and analyze it in a microscope or if someone were to do that, uh, would they see anything different there? Uh, Would they see, Little uh, little images of Our Lady of Guadalupe, perhaps on the on, <laughs> on the molecular uh, level. One can hope. Uh, <laughs> one can hope, but no, they would not. Uh, and the church has never held that there's something. Um, I need to be very careful about the metaphysics here. So, so <laughs> no, this keep, is this so, is this is the the, the most nerve wracking <laughs> part about recording this. Right? Is you, you know I think that's why we're relying so much on uh, we'll call them better theologians right. because. Uh, we're not relying on our own theology here because it, the, the subject matter is too, too important. I yeah. Think. Well, that's a great, that's a great segue actually. Maybe I should just not talk as much and just, just read from Ratzinger, but let me, let me preface this by saying the church has not taught that there is a measurable or quantifiable or observable mm-hmm. material change in the elements. Now the change may be apprehensible, but if it is, it is apprehensible only by faith, right? Mm-hmm. We will not be able to, to see a change. We will not be able to smell a change or, mm. or hear a change or feel a change, right? Um, so if it is apprehensible at all, it will be only through the eyes of faith. Um, but with that said, so, so yeah, so the church has never taught there is an, a visible or observable material change. So if you were to take it into a microscope, under a microscope, you wouldn't see anything different. But now with that said, um, the reason that that's the case is because the material world is not all that is real. Mm-hmm. If it were, then uh, we would not have our ideas of God that we do. Um, and if it were, the entire faith would collapse because the faith itself is built on the this idea that there is more 
to the world than what is readily discernible through the five senses. Um, and this is this again goes to the poverty of spirit that or poverty of intellect that I was talking about, uh, Ratzinger discussing uh, earlier in this podcast. Now, Ratzinger points it points the or phrases it this way. He says, "Has the church not, with her concept of substance, for she speaks of transubstantiation, fettered herself too far, too great an extent? Oh, too sorry, too far, too too far, too great an extent to a science that is basically primitive and obsolete." And what he's talking about there is basically by. Um, by using the word transubstantiation in the Council of Trent, uh, the 13th session, um, I think it's Canon 2, has the church said, hey, Aristotle was right about all his metaphysics, <laughs> and we fully embrace the language of substance, and that's what we're going with. We're staking our claim to Aristotle's metaphysics for the truth of what happens in the Eucharist. Um, we can talk about that uh, a little bit later, but Ratzinger rightly says objections like that are in the end very superficial mm. because he says, first of all, when the church says substance and when it said substance in the Council of Trent, what it was doing was not saying Aristotle was right about all of his metaphysics, because in fact, you'll find some of Aristotle's metaphysics are incompatible with uh, Catholicism. But instead, what the church was doing was avoiding what Ratzinger says as the naive approach or the naivety associated with what we can touch or measure. Mm. So by saying that the substance is what we're after here. The substance is what we're talking about, not just the quantum, that which we, we can quantify. Um, we're saying that something real happens here. So Ratzinger says, first, what has always mattered to the church is that a real transformation takes place here. Something genuinely happens in the Eucharist. So there's something new there that wasn't there before. We start with the creatures of bread and wine. Um, the the uh, Novus Ordo says, uh, fruit of the vine and work of human hands. Uh, for uh, What does it say for the, the bread? It's fruit of the vine, fruit of the earth and work of humans, right? Earth, and fruit of the yeah. vine and work of humans. Um, so that's what it starts out as. And then there's a genuine transformation. And then second, Ratzinger says, what is going on here in the Eucharist is an event happening to the thing itself and not just something that's agreed among ourselves. So there's this idea called transsignification that some people hold to. And they say, there's nothing actually that happens to the bread and wine, except, except unless you consider the fact that we all consider this to be a symbol of something and our very consideration of this and a sort of constructivist ideation gives it a new meaning. So we assign it a new meaning collectively among ourselves. We decide as a church, hey, we are now going to say this is the body and blood. We're now going to venerate. We're now going to eat it as if it were the body and blood. Um, but it, it doesn't actually change the substance of the thing, right? So that's transsignification. And Benedict or Ratzinger is saying, no, that's not it at all, right? Uh, he, he, he used the, the uh, analogy of a flag, like a, a flag could just be a bit of cloth, right? But when you mm -hmm. carry it into battle and when you make it the standard bearer of your nation, it becomes something totally different and people will die for the flag and people, soldiers will go and hold the flag up so that it does not fall onto the ground in the battlefield. That's right. transsignification. There's nothing- Right, because at the end of the day, it's still a flag. It's a cloth, right? I mean, right? You might be willing to, to, to die for the symbol behind that flag, right. but if the flag falls on the ground, it's still- a flag cloth. Yeah, exactly. So that's transsignification where the sign becomes transformed, mm -hmm. right? Or not transformed. The sign becomes changed, right? Transubstantiation though is what the church is teaching. And that's where something actually is taking place. So he says those two things matter that there is a real transformation that takes place here. And that it is an event happening to the thing itself rather than just something that is agreed upon by ourselves. Um, and then he, he listened to a third thing, which sort of, um, we can use to talk about Eucharistic adoration, but he says, if those two things hold true, if that is how it is, then we do not just change the use of the bread and the wine, but through the faithful prayer of the church, the Lord himself is acting and doing a new thing. And then that means that the presence remains. And that is why then we, we venerate the, the mm -hmm. host, uh, in the blessed sacrament. 
uh, because he is still there because the transformation is real. And this is, uh, this is counter to the, um, what we call the receptionist ideas of many of the Protestant reformers. There was this man named Peter Martyr Verigli who um, informed many reformed ideas of the Eucharist. And you'll find, again, a veritable range of ideas of the Eucharist in Protestant circles from mere symbolism, Zwinglianism, to uh, something like what we call receptionist or consubstantiation in Lutheran circles. But the receptionist idea is basically that there's nothing, there's nothing that happens to the actual elements at the consecration uh, in a substance sense. What happens is that when the believer by faith consumes those things, the grace is affected in the believer. Mm-hmm. So it's the act of reception that conditions the change that takes place. And Ratzinger here says, no, that's not the case. Uh, and in fact, I mean, if if the receptionists were right, I think that it would in a strange way, and this is sort of counter to the whole uh, ideas of the reformers, it sort of conditions the transformation itself onto the act of the believer right but what we believe what we hold to is that the change in the elements itself into the body and blood is not at all conditional upon what i think or what you think right right the priest says the words the priest does the act of consecration in persona christi so acting in the person of christ and christ through him transforms those elements into the body and blood and if no one eats the the body and blood they're still the body and blood right they're not conditioned Mm -hmm. or not conditional upon my faith or your faith in receiving right. the elements. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it really, it seems like the only thing that's conditional upon is the priest's faith, right? Right. That it's a validly offered mass and Correct. that he believes that it is truly uh, undergoing transubstantiation. And, and the reason, the reason why I think that still, that doesn't fall victim to the same criticism that I just leveled, that is sort of somehow conditional upon um, our own action is that the priest is acting in persona exactly. Christi. So, he, so it's not, does this, um, does this priest as an individual believer believe, right? But does right. this priest acting in the person of Christ at the consecration yep. believe? Yeah. And I think, um, so Cardinal, at the time Cardinal Ratzinger, um, Pope Benedict does a beautiful job of portraying that. And another uh, potential way of looking at that uh, for someone who maybe is still clinging on to a little bit of a scientific notion or maybe thinks a sensory notion says, mm-hmm. but it still tastes like bread. It still right. tastes like wine. Uh, St. Thomas does an excellent job of addressing this from a philosophical and theological framework. And the way he does this is in article five of question 75. Uh, The question there is whether the accidents of the bread and wine remain in the sacrament after the change. So accidents, that's a a great, but also loaded philosophical word. So when we talk about accidents, what that word is talking about is the distinction in a substance uh, of an object between its necessary uh, properties and it's accidental properties. And when we talk about the accidental properties uh, in the language of philosophy, what that means is those are properties which may or may not uh, exist to that object, but are not necessary for the actual being, the actual substance, the actual making of that object. So an example of this might be like the chairs that we're sitting on. Right. Uh, when you think about a chair, uh, you can think of maybe a chair that's made out of wood or a chair that's made out of metal. But the fact that it's wood or metal is accidental to use that language accidental to the fact that it's a chair right you could make it out of all kinds of things you could make shirts out of cotton you could make them out of um different fabrics like polyester polyester uh wool wool hair shirt linen sackcloth (laughs) (laughs) but ultimately it's still a shirt right? right because the the necessary essence of what is a shirt um 
is not changed by what the shirt is made out of. And what Thomas argues is that the accidental properties of the bread and wine remain while the substance itself, the necessary, um, the necessary property of the bread is completely transformed into the necessary property of body and blood. The accidents of the taste of blood or the taste of flesh are not there because those are merely accidental. And Thomas puts this incredibly beautifully. I think he says that this is an act of divine providence. And the reason it's an act of divine providence is because could you imagine as a human being walking up to, uh, through the communion line and then eating something that actually tasted like human flesh or Mm. tasted like human blood. So it's kind of a mercy. uh, Thomas is saying that uh, God has, kept the accidental properties of the the bread and wine there. Uh, and also uh, he says that um, basically that he says it's not customary, but horrible for men to eat human flesh and to drink blood. So it's been bound up with those accidental properties so that it is not um, horrible for us anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also he says, secondly, lest this sacrament might be derided by unbelievers. If we were to eat our Lord under his own species. Um, so that is basically going to uh, what you were kind of the, the, objections that Augustine was trying to defend um, about cannibalism, right? So Mm -hmm. that's basically what what Thomas is saying there. And then I think this is beautiful. He says, thirdly, that while we receive our Lord's body and blood invisibly, this may redound to the merit of faith. So it comes down to, yes, the accidental properties are still there. That gives us as believers the opportunity to have true faith in this and say, yes, I know that it tastes like bread. I know that it tastes like wine, but I know in my heart of hearts that this is the true presence, body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. And I think one more point that deserves mentioning is on your point about the the accidents and the substance, this whole idea of transformation. Some of the reformers, uh, I'm thinking here specifically of Peter Martyr Verigli, I think Calvin as well, criticized the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation on some of the grounds that we already mentioned, you know, overly overusing Aristotelian categories, et cetera. The Orthodox often criticize the Catholics on the, the, the Aristotle uh, terminology as well. And that misses the point um, for a number of reasons, but, but Verigli and Calvin and some others said, we don't embrace this because what the church is teaching is that the ordinary creatures of bread and wine are annihilated and replaced entirely by the body and blood of Christ mm-hmm. in the Catholic view. Now, obviously, Verigli and Calvin didn't actually believe that, but they said, we can't hold to that because you are then saying that matter is bad. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's an almost like uh, sort of Gnostic or Platonic thrust of that, right, in rejecting the matter. But it's important, Aquinas addresses this, we were talking about, that, about it before we turned the microphone on, but Aquinas addresses this question of whether or not the bread and wine are annihilated. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he says that they're not. And in fact, the teaching has never held that the bread and wine are annihilated, but rather that they're transformed. Mm -hmm. So I think transformed versus annihilated is a very important distinction. And it's, you know, if you you think to the the Catholic teleology of matter, it is all for God, right? All of creation sings God's praises. That's why every knee shall bow when Christ will come Mm -hmm. back. So these ordinary creatures are actually uh, in the Eucharistic celebration at the act of consecration, at the moment of consecration, are caught up in this heavenly liturgy that sings God's praises. And in so doing, they're transformed into the body and blood of their very creator. And so when you think about it that way, it, it's not about 
Jesus destroying what we bring, bread and wine, and being like, no, I'm the God of the universe. No, Jesus is taking these humble creatures that we offer up, the fruit of the vine and the fruit of the earth, work of human hands, and saying, thank you, I will transform them. And now they will no longer remain. I, I will totally remake them, right? Um, in the same way that our bodies will be totally transformed at the mm -hmm. last day, right? At the, at the judgment day. Um, we will... You know, our accidents, our, our, our bodies will be there. We will be be there. We will not be annihilated. We will rather be transformed. Mm -hmm. um, every part of us will be transformed. Um, so that, I think, is an important thing. Uh, the second thing, we haven't talked about this very much in this whole discussion, um, and maybe we can do this at another point. We've talked about uh, these three questions that Ratzinger originally posed in his essay. We haven't talked about, though, the um, the sort of meta-narrative driving the uh, the Eucharistic sacrifice and if you're interested in that, I highly encourage you to pick up Brant Petre's Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, because this is a very excellent book that looks at all of salvation history um, with a, I mean, it begins, it begins, I guess, at the very beginning, but it really uh, pays special attention beginning at the first, what he calls the first Exodus or what we call Exodus, right? In the, um, in the Bible, when the uh, Jewish people are led by God out of Egypt, um, beginning with the Passover meal, right? Mm -hmm. When they would sacrifice a lamb and then consume the lamb, eat the lamb, um, as the angel of death passed over them, right? And so uh, this, the Eucharist is a, um, is a sign of that Passover, right? And right. It's, it's a reenactment in that sense of the Passover meal. It's incredible. It's a fulfillment of the new covenant. Yep. And so all of these ideas are very, very integral to understanding why exactly Jesus gave us his body and blood to eat, but it's very important too. So Jesus has the new Passover lamb, just to condense it to 10 seconds here, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus has a new Passover lamb is inaugurating the second exodus for the church as the new Israel. So this is the sign of the new covenant. And that's exactly why Jesus said, this is the sign of the new covenant. And why Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 um, echoes that, that language as well. This is a new covenant. So covenant theology, this is all very important. Um, but that is why we eat the body and blood of Christ. And then the third thing I'll say, just as we wrap up here, this is a hard saying, yep. just as we read in John chapter six, and it is a difficult thing to grasp. And even still, when I go to mass, I, uh, I think, you know, my human mind often grapples with this, right? Mm -hmm. Am I really eating the body yeah. and blood of Christ? Um, but the very act of faith, as Thomas is saying, right, it's a, it's a challenge of faith and that very act of faith, all of these things that require faith on our parts are invitations from yeah. God for us to grow deeper in faith and draw closer to him. Yeah, I think my my kind of last comment on on that is, you know, as, as I was preparing for this and kind of meditating on both what Thomas uh, wrote and and much of what we've, we've spoken about was, just as you talked about this being the fulfillment of the covenant, covenant the, you know, the Paschal sacrifice, now the, the new covenant. Um, Christ, as we know, uh, was incarnated and is fully, both whole, fully human and fully divine, right? So he understood our very human limitations. And that is why I think the way the Eucharist is presented through transubstantiation is so beautiful and so incredible is because Christ understood our limitations, right? He understood as a human being why this teaching would be hard. He understood why we would not choose to eat something that tasted like flesh and blood. Um, but he also understood... Um, the spiritual nature of man that allows uh, him to ascend above that. And so he provided us, as you said, both a satisfaction of our human nature and our humanity, but also through faith, the means to ascend above it. And I think that is one of the great 
uh, and the holy mysteries of the, the Eucharist, that it allows us both to satisfy our humanity, but also to ascend above it uh, into, into communion with him. I love that. And it just makes me so thankful that the, the sign of our covenant with God and our relationship with him and our ability to commune with him is sustenance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Elsewhere, I've read Ratzinger's discourse. Um, this is actually in his Jesus of Nazareth trilogy. Um, but he talks about the Eucharist and one of his reflections is that bread is what sustains us and wine is what you have at a banquet. Mm, and I just love that because, yeah, yeah, right. Because you, you go, uh, and of course you have the bread first and then the wine, right? So you partake in the bread and that's your sustenance. That's give us our day, our daily bread, right? So this, this feeds and sustains our faith. And then what's the wine for? It's to, to celebrate the new covenant, right? It's the, the wine of the marriage feast, right? Um, it's the wine at the supper of the lamb. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that is very exciting. I want to close this with a verse from Deuteronomy four, seven. I'm again, just copying Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger who opens his essay with this verse, but it's very powerful. This is Deuteronomy four, seven. So in the uh, chron- chronology of salvation history, Deuteronomy is the, of course the fifth book of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy. Uh, so this is after the, um, the, at least the inauguration of the Exodus, right? This is in the sort of desert wanderings, a section of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 4, 7, there's this wonderful, uh, beautiful little verse where uh, Moses is commanding Israel to give obedience to God. And he says, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever Mm. we call upon him. And one of the beautiful things about the Eucharist is, A, the Eucharist is in our churches. In every Catholic church, there's a tabernacle. There may be perpetual adoration. Um, but Jesus is there. Jesus is really and truly present, not just in symbol, but in substance. And B, when we consume the Eucharist, Jesus is inside of us mm-hmm. and Jesus sustains our faith in that way. So just as Israel was so blessed to have a God so near to it in Deuteronomy 4, as Moses pointed out, that's what the church has now. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord, our God is to us whenever we call upon him. Incredible. Thank you so much for listening to Creedal Catholic. We'll be back again soon with another episode. I have a cool episode coming up on vocations. I'll be talking with a priest, actually one of the hosts of Clerically Speaking, uh, Father Anthony Sharapa, about vocations and his experience as a priest. So that will be coming out next week. I look forward to releasing that. Uh, and thank you so much for the listening today. If you have comments on what we left out or what we forgot, you can email us creedalcatholic at vernacularpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.